That's in the air. This could be out. Diamond's underneath it. Will he catch it? He's got good hands. He's got him. Yes, he has. Diamond's got him in the deep. Having fumbled all night, he's taken the big one. Welcome to Couch Talk. Today's guest is former New Zealand cricketer Gavin Larson. He talks about his career, the group of bowlers known as Dibbly Dobbly Wibbly Wobbly, the 1992 World Cup, and also his role as the operations manager for the 2015 Cricket World Cup in New Zealand. Welcome to the show, Gavin. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for being on. It's absolutely my pleasure having you on. You know, I want to talk a bit about your playing career and later on about your role as the operations manager for the World Cup in New Zealand uh, next year. First of all, you know, you were part of a group of bowlers for New Zealand known as the Dibbly Dobbly Wibbly Wobblies. But, you know, growing up as a kid, no one really envisions themselves to be, you know, such a specialized uh, operator. Um, so what was your start uh, to bowling and who were your role models? And how was it that uh, you settled on that style of bowling? Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's a difficult question. Um, Look, when I started as a as a youngster, I, I was always a batsman um, who bowled a little bit. So I, I played for Wellington through all the representative age group um, programs. Uh, you know, played under 16s, 18s, 20s. Um, I captained Wellington. I was, a, I was a middle order batsman, and I, I bowled a few uh, a few medium paces. Um, I didn't play first class cricket for Wellington again as a middle middle order batsman. And I found that I just had an ability to, you know, bowl a pretty tidy line of length, mm-hmm. um, you know, medium pace. And then the one-day game was growing, and I just found that um, I was making teams more as a, as a bowler than I was as a as a as a batsman. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess I guess at the end of the day, the bottom line is that I just put more emphasis on my on my bowling, uh, you know, the 50-over bowling. And that's what probably became my, um, you know, my blueprint. But how useful was it that you know the con- the kind of conditions that you get to play in generally in New Zealand that enabled you and others like you to become you know that specialised mode of uh, bowling, and uh, you know also as you mentioned, it was a time when other almost all the teams in the world were still figuring out how to play the ODI format. Um. Well, back at, I mean, back in the 80s and 90s, the pitchers in New Zealand, they uh, they did a little bit. They, 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 there was a bit of sideways movement, and um, the pitchers that were, uh, I guess, more one-day pitchers, um, they, they, they were quite slow as, as well. So it certainly suited guys who took the pace off the ball, um, who you know didn't try to run in and bowl at 140 kilometres an hour, um, you know, guys that had the ability to just hit back of a length, hit top of off stump, um, and, and not necessarily at any great at any great pace. So so the conditions, um, you know, suited me, and, and, and there's no doubt about that. Um, so guys like, you know, Chris Harris and Willie Watson and, you know, even my old mate, you know, um, uh, Roddy Latham, you know, in the 92 World Cup, who, who hardly bowled for Canterbury, you know, we, we became quite... Effective on those on those pitches. I have to say that the pitches have changed dramatically in, in New Zealand over the last probably 15 years or so, and and and, uh, and we do produce very very good um, one day pitches now that have you know good pace and carry. Um, you know, but not just within New Zealand, but all over the world, that seems to be the case. You know, which is why there is a question from a listener, Saren. He wants to know that kind of bowler, that one 
who can hit the back of the length, a seamer, back of the length, um, with a little bit of movement, controlling the direction more than anything else, that, is, that kind of bowler has almost vanished from international cricket. You know, perhaps uh, you can think Paul Collingwood was the last of its kind, you would say? Yeah, I, I think um, like anything in life, times change. Um, you know, the, the things evolve and, and, and what we've got, particularly there's been some, um, you know, I think very positive rule changes implemented by the um, by the ICC, you know, the playing conditions now, you know, you've got a, an extra man inside the circle, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, you've, you, the boundaries have got a bit shorter, the bats <laughs> have got bigger and, and you see fours and sixes, you know, more frequently now. Um, 2020 cricket has had an, had an amazing uh, influence on, on 50 over cricket and the way players go about their game. Um, the bowlers are a lot more attacking. Um, I find now, and the batsmen um, do not, you know, go into their shell through the, the middle stages of a 50-over innings. You, mm-hmm. you still see an acceleration of scoring. So I think the days of the old, you know, um, bowling style like mine, um, I, I really do think they're gone now. I think it's about variations and change of pace and, um, and being a lot more um, attacking in terms of your mindset. Um. Would you think, do, do you think that you could still cut it if your style of bowling would be um, the, the kind of skill that you had, uh, the variations you had, could you still play that in the modern ODI uh, games, you know? Can you play that, you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, and as I say, things evolve and players need to evolve um, as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm in no doubt whatsoever that... Um, you know, anyone that bowls at sort of 120 to 130, early 130s, um, you know, if they just run in and bowl, you know, dead straight back of the length, these days I'll get hit. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about having having a couple of change-ups, slower deliveries, being able to bowl a quick bouncer, a slower bouncer, being able to bowl Yorkers on demand, you know, being able to, you know, bowl Yorkers on a on a fifth stump line or or, or, or pushing it pushing it into leg stump. Um, so there's all sorts of variations that you've got to be armed with um, these days as a bowler. And you know, I'm I'm in no doubt if I was you know 17, 18, 19 again that you would, you know, you would adapt um, adapt your game accordingly. Mm. There is an interesting query for you from another listener, Nilotpal, and this is the about the bits and pieces cricketers that. Uh, played a lot, especially in the you know 90s, post 90s. He wonders whether that has done more harm than good to the game of cricket itself, because you know, if you if it were up to you in a playing eleven, who would you pick? Uh, you know, Gavin Larson or a Sean Tate? Oh, look, I think that's a very that, that that's a very good question, and I think if I if I hark back to the playing conditions. Mm-hmm. That we were presented with, you know, back in the back in the nineties, in particular in New Zealand, then, you know, and bits and pieces, you know, to me that's a, that's a, it's a bit of a negative. But guys who could contribute, you know, in all three, um, you know, portions of the game, when you know, with the bat, with the ball, and 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 very good fielders, um, they they were worth, they, they were like gold nuggets. Um, those those types of players, um, as the pitches have got better and 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 you know quicker pace and carry, um, those types of players have been found out a little bit more. So, you know, the specialists have come back to um, back to the fore. So, 
you know, Sean Tate, for instance, you know, being able to run in and bowl at 140k and 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 be an attacking weapon is, um, you know, is very very important and fantastic if teams have got a, a couple of guys like that, you know, in their armoury and, and and similarly, you know, attacking batsmen who are who are absolute specialists, um, you know, batting down to number say number seven or number eight, um, you know, that, that that's a massive advantage as well. I mean, isn't it interesting, you know, test match cricket was always said to be the game for the specialists and the limited overs was for anyone that can do any two out of three roles. But, um, and when T20 came in, there was the idea of, you know, oh, try to get as many all-rounders. But we're seeing that even the limited overs game is becoming a game for specialists. Yep, I um, absolutely uh, agree with that. Yeah, I'm pleased you mentioned Test match cricket too, because it's to me it's still the absolute number one form of the game, and the pure form of the game. And and I think the role that your genuine all rounder plays in, in a Test team is is just so vital. It's so so pivotal. Um, you know, if you've got a a world class all rounder or two, um, that you can um, you know slide into your middle order. Um, and who can be a frontline bowler? It just gives you so many options as a, as a team, and you know, as, as a captain, you know, you can play two spinners, you can play the extra batsman down the order, um, and, and similarly, if you've got wicket keepers, you know, who can who can bat and score test hundreds, um, you know, that that that's an, a massive help um, in terms of the balance of the team as well. So, yeah, I'd, I'd really stress the point that. Um, you know, whilst, you know, I do talk a lot about short-form cricket because I played a lot of 50-over <laughs> cricket, um, you know, I still I still believe that the long long form of the game is, is, is where it's at. Hmm. Uh, you know, I want to talk about that, your long form uh, in, you know, first class in test matches. Um, you know, there are a couple of questions from uh, listeners. And since, you know, the kind of bowler that you were, what were your options in trying to get wickets at the first-class level? You know, did you generally focus on getting wickets in front of the wicket or behind the wicket? Uh, yeah, no, that's a good question. I, I didn't play as many tests as I, I would have liked. I only played eight. Um, I, I had reasonable success. I think I picked up 24 wickets, I think it might have been, um, you know, in those eight, eight tests. But, you know, I, I always recognised that my, my style of bowling um, was... It was going to be, you know, third seamer at best, um, or, or possibly contributing, you know, as a, as a as a batsman down around number, you know, seven, seven, eight, nine, um, and and being the fourth seamer in a, in a team. So I always recognised that I didn't have that um, ability to be bowling in the, the mid one thirties consistently. Um, so I wasn't going to be, um, and because I tended to angle the ball into the right hand, and I, I didn't. You know, sort of have a, a very natural outswing that side. I wasn't bringing the, the slips in to play, um, you know, in long form cricket enough. Um, then, then my appearances were, were going to be limited, and that's certainly, that's certainly how it panned out. So you, so you would, you were um, trying to take the wickets in front of the wicket, whether trapping a Melbourne double or you know, uh, getting caught in the cover area. I would suppose. Yeah, I guess so. You know, I mean, my um, my asset was that I could bowl. Um, I could bowl very straight. I was accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so and for me in long form cricket, it was about me building pressure, uh, bowling in tandem, maybe an attacking bowler from one end, and me, um, you know, creating a holding pattern at the other end, and then trying to bowl, um, you know, made motors. 
um, you know, there's a real correlation between, you know, um, the number of maidens that are bold in, in long-form cricket mm-hmm. um, and, um, and the success that teams have um, because it's all about building building pressure. Um, so I think there's always a... Um, I think there's always an upside, you know, to have guys in your team who can um, help, help to build that pressure and allow the attacking bowlers to, you know, do their, do their job at the other end. Certainly. You know, uh, Lasit Malinga, one of the best short-form bowlers we have, you know, he used to practice bowling Yorkers accurately by, you know, placing a pair of shoes at the crease and then targeting them. <laughs> what, what, what was your tool to your accuracy? You know, how did you get to be that accurate a bowler? Were there any, um, you know, funky gadgetry stuff that you used or something else? Uh, I didn't put down sand shoes to aim at or anything like that. But I, look, I, no, not really. I, I just found I just had this almost natural ability just to be able to, you know, put the ball in, in, in generally the right spot more often than not. I, I go back to a coach I had, um, a guy called Artie Dick, who happened to, he played for New Zealand um, a, a few generations before me. But he was my first sort of true coach um, when I was um, working my way through the Wellington Age Group program. And I remember Artie saying to me one day that, you know, young man, you need to be able to put a blindfold on and bowl your stock delivery, mm. um, ball after ball after ball. Uh, and once you do that, and you can do that, then then you move to to create the variations. And I, I still um, express that now to, to young guys that I that I coach which is until you've actually got yourself, you know, a, a, a really good stock delivery, um, you know, that you can um, that you can bank, um, then, you know, don't, don't try all these fancy variations. Um, so, you know, that was, that was one really cool piece of advice I got from, a, from an early coach. Hmm. Uh, there, there is another question from a listener, Michael. He's from Auckland. Um, you know, he points out that, you know, you opened the bowling a few times as well and you averaged a very good 21 at just over three runs and over. Did you enjoy bowling with the new ball or did you like bowling it when it was uh, softer? Which one did you prefer? <laughs> oh, I, didn't, I didn't get to take the new ball very often, I can promise you that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, look, I remember in 96 in the West Indies and uh, we had we were riddled with injuries and, I, I opened the bowling in, um, in, in, in a couple of tests, and, and I remember in Barbados looking up at the scoreboard, and I had the first three wickets that, that mm-hmm. fell, um, and I'd taken them pretty much with the new ball. So, yeah, look, it was um, that, that was neat. And, and when you do bowl with a new ball, obviously, the, you know you've got the um, you know the, the chance and the opportunity that it might swing a little bit as well. Um, so, so that was nice. But look, I, I always realised that um, you know that was only ever going to be a stopgap measure, and I would fall back into a third or fourth sort of seamer role and um and, and and that was that was really my that was really my job um i want to talk a bit about the 92 world cup which was obviously a high point for new zealand cricket as well as you as a player and you know your teammates playing at home conditions that uh, suited you especially in auckland you know uh, but the way the tournament ended for new zealand that must still rankle you guys Oh, oh, look, we still, I still think about it, and it's still a very vivid memory. I won't say that it rankles, though. Um, you know, we moved on from that very, very quickly. It was just an amazing, um, you know, month and a bit of, of, of cricket. And, um, you know, we captured the, the hearts and minds of all, all New Zealanders. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no doubt about that. And, you know, you know you're, 
you know you've cracked it when the politicians want to come into your changing room and then have a photo taken. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, when, that's, when, that's when things are going well. And, um, you know, to be able to walk through airports and, 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 and people were sort of, you know, you know, clapping and patting you on the back. Um, you know, that doesn't happen very often. And it's very rare for, a, you know, New Zealand cricket team uh, in a... In a in an ITC Cricket World Cup to, to to win seven games in a row it was it was unprecedented and um, yeah look it, it created a real sort of almost tidal wave of cricketing enthusiasm through the country and it was really neat to be part of and you know that that semi final at Eden Park was um, oh look it was it was incredibly disappointing the way it, the way it panned out we, you know we certainly had enough runs on the board 260. Which is probably the equivalent of about 320 these days, mm-hmm. um, and we should have we should have won it. But you know, Inzip had a great knock, um, and, and it got finished off by um, you know by Javid, who wasn't a bad little player, and um, unfortunately we just came up a little bit short. But uh, you know, you, there are you know before the uh, tournament started, you didn't have great results as a team, but then. You get on a run, and then there's also these expectations that start building up that, you know, once you win three matches in a row, four matches in a row, people expect you to win every single time. How did you guys handle that pressure of expectations within the team? You know, what, what did Martin Crow or your coach do in speci- especially uh, to keep you guys, you know, feet on the ground and make sure that you are focused on the job? Well, we had some good experience in, in, the, in the team. We had, you know, a lot of guys had played, you know, a, a lot of cricket for their, you know, domestically and, and, and for New Zealand. So it wasn't like we were a, a, a young, raw, um, you know, immature team. Um, so that, that, you know, I guess first and foremost, you know, there was, I, I think, some mental strength um, across across the individuals in the team. I think the other thing that I do remember is Marty Crow, our captain. You know, he insisted that we sort of almost de- depersonalised each of the teams. So, you know, when New Zealand has played Australia in the past, you know, you can get a little bit caught up in the whole trans-Tasman sort of hype and, you know, you're playing the old enemy from across the ditch. And, and so, you know, what we did was, you know, in game one of the tournament, we were playing the yellow team. Nice. Um, so we just called them the yellow team. When we played Zimbabwe at Napier, we called them, the, we're now playing the red team. Um, you know, Pakistan with a green team. Um, so that that just enabled us to, to to focus in on, you know, what we needed to do as a team to you know to beat that yellow team, um, and and that took away some of the I guess some of the emotion. But oh look, as I say, it was a, it was a, it was a it was a great little period in, in New Zealand cricket, and um, really really cool to be part of it. Um, how much truth is there to this fact that, you know, the final round-robin game against Pakistan, which New Zealand lost the first loss in the tournament, but losing that guaranteed uh, New Zealand of a uh, home semi-final? You know, so were you guys taking it a bit too easy in that game? What happened there? Oh, no. Excuse my French. Um, when, you're on a, when you're on a roll, you just stay on a roll. You know, winning is a habit. And, um, you know, we wanted to win every game in that tournament. Um, it was always, I think, on the cards that at some stage in that tournament, you know, we were probably going to trip up in some way. And, and that day, our, our, you know, our top order, just they had, they had a bad day at the office. Mm. Um, so we, didn't, we just simply didn't put enough runs on the board um, against Pakistan. They had their backs to the wall, so they'd, they'd come out absolutely charging. Mm. 
that day. You know, it was a must-win game for them. Uh, so I don't think it actually took the wind out of our sails at all. Um, it, it, in fact, in a way, it had allowed us to, to sit down and reset um, and just to remind um, ourselves that, you know, we're playing sport here and there's always going to be a winner and a loser. And um, and I think we reset really well. We went to Eden Park and, as I say, you know, we put 260 on the board and we actually, you know, had enough had enough funds to win that game and, and probably should have. All right. Um, moving on ahead, uh, let's uh, look ahead to the uh, Cricket World Cup next year. Um, and you are the operations manager in New Zealand. Um, so what are the stuff that uh, you are in charge of? Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm the cricket operations manager. So um, there's two there's two areas that I'm responsible for. One is uh, what's called team services. So that's about... Um, I guess everything that, that the cricket teams um, will encounter mm-hmm. um, and experience from the moment they, they land in either Australia or New Zealand and to, to when they depart the tournament. So that's, you know, that's airport processes, it's, it's hotels, it's, um, you know, transportation, it's getting them from A to B, it's getting them done, you know, to practices, it's, it's the setting up of all the team hotels. Uh, it's about catering, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I've got a team of people that are in New Zealand that are um, pulling all that logistical work together. Mm-hmm. The second part of my role is um, what I call the pure cricket operations side. So that's that's around the venues. That's making sure that the you know the pitches are all at world class standards, um, the outfields, the training facilities, um, which is a very very important focus for the for the ICC. Um, the spaces and facilities for the players and the match officials, so, you know, the likes of their changing rooms, um, the way everything is set up, uh, and also the secondary training venues. So when we need to, when we've got multiple teams in one city, mm-hmm. you know, we need to have um, we need to have other training facilities up and running. So it's about, um, you know, um, I guess coordinating and communicating with, with those cities to make sure those facilities are in, in order. Tournament is uh, coming to New Zealand after 1992. That's 22 years hence, uh, so 23 years hence. Um, but what sort of lasting legacy are you guys trying to build up through this World Cup so that you know cricket as a sport is continually, continually supported in terms of uh, interest in the sport facilities as well? Yeah, I, th- I think um, first and foremost, it's um, it's very very apparent that we've got you know. New Zealand is behind us um, and that people are getting excited and are engaging with the World Cup. So we've got, a, as, as you sort of allude to, a massive opportunity from a legacy point of view to make sure we leave a, you know, you know leave something that's going to be, um, you know, long-standing and of, of real value for, for New Zealand cricket. And I, I guess, you know, one area of, of real focus, and it doesn't fall into my area, but I know the LOC are looking at this with New Zealand cricket. It's, it's around you know, participation numbers and, you know, the, the young cricketers around New Zealand. And, and there's no doubt whatsoever that I think there's going to be a spike in terms of participation numbers. Mm-hmm. So it's about making sure that the cricket associations around New Zealand um, maximise the opportunity um, the Cricket World Cup will, will present. And that, that's around making sure that the, 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 the infrastructure, the physical infrastructure is in place to be able to support a spike in numbers, you know, are there enough artificial pitches, are there enough grounds 
you know, around New Zealand, you know, so that when we do have a 10% increase in, in playing numbers, if that, you know, if that's the number, then, you know, we've got to be able to cater for these, for these new cricketers because, you know, the last thing you want to do is offer them a, a you know, a bad service and, and you'll just, and you lose them again quickly. Hmm. And uh, finally, I want to hear from you the sort of expectations for Team New Zealand uh, for in this World Cup. Uh, because, you know, New Zealand has a pretty good team. Uh, in fact, a very good team, um, a very innovative captain, and uh, they have a lot of, lot of the bases covered in terms of uh, all-rounders, openers, um, you know, hard-hitting batsmen, fast bowlers, everything. Uh, where do you think, how long, how deep do you think uh, they can run in the World Cup? Uh, first of all, New Zealand have got a good, uh, a good pedigree, a good history in, in cricket World Cups. You know, yeah. they've made a number of semi-finals, um, five or six, I think. Um, and so, so, so they've always had a good run in cricket World Cups, and other teams know that. So, I, I, you know, I certainly wouldn't say that you know we're a dark horse. I think, I think we're, you know, right up there as one of the teams that can do well um, in, in the World Cup. Um, I think, yeah, to, to your point, um, there's a mixture, a really good mixture of experience um, and, and sort of youth coming through. There's um, X-Factor players, guys that can win games almost outright by themselves, you know, the Brendan McCullums and the, and the Ross Taylors of this world and, and any number of other guys that can, you know, hit the ball, <laughs> hit the yeah. ball a country mile. Um, you know, a number of attacking bowlers um, and, and really good variations. And I think most importantly, there's some depth developing in, in the game in New Zealand. So so what that means is that there's competition for spots. Um, so, you know, if, if they can avoid injuries, in particular to the, the quicker bowlers, and if they can, you know, get into the January period and be picking from a full squad, then, you know, I think I think our guys um, have, a, have, a, have a good chance of, of having a, a, a run deep into the tournament. Um, the, big, the big issue will be if they do reach quarterfinal sort of slash semifinal, it's whether they've got that mental ability to to jump that final hurdle, um, because as I say, a New Zealand team's never played in a in a World Cup final before. Hmm. Uh, what What do you think? What do you think they need to make that jump? Uh, well, they'll be. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, of course, um, it's more a hard runs... one because I've just never. Yeah, but it, but it is a. It will be a mental hurdle. There's no doubt about that. Physically. Hmm. Um, technically, tactically, I, I think they cover all the bases really well. You know, if they do reach a quarterfinal and they play here in Wellington and there's 34,000 people, a full stadium watching them, the expectations are going to be massive. And, and it's just whether they can, you know, mentally, um, you know, work their way through that because um, it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be a massive challenge against, you know, um, a, a very good team, whoever they're playing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, on the day, you know, who knows? But, but it will be, it will be in the mind, I believe, definitely. All right. On that note, Gavin, thank you so much for your time, and I wish you all the best with uh, you know the lead up and the run up into the uh, World Cup, and I uh, wish the best to Cricket New Zealand as well. Great. Thanks very much. Good, good talking to you. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Okay. Bye bye.